I grew up with sort of a, a regimented upbringing with institutions and organizations that surrounded my life. There were clubs and organizations that my family belonged to. There was the speech club. It was a priority on my dad's list that I learned how to uh, stand up and become a public speaker so that when I get into the business world and I'm financially successful at business meetings, I'll be able to handle myself. There was the country club so you could learn how to play golf and intermingle and so forth. The gun club, learn how to shoot a gun. On and on and on, there were clubs, organizations, and institutions. I remember them. All of them had rules, and all of them had dues that you pay. You pay a fee, you join the club, you become a member, you communicate somehow back and forth, and after you pay your dues, you earn the right to participate in the activities of that club. I grew up thinking the church was just like a club or an institution, an organization. You join by putting your name on a list, you pay your dues, or you pledge to pay your dues, and you get billed every now and then. You pay your dues to the club, and that gives you a right to exercise certain freedoms and responsibilities within that group. And unfortunately, the world often sees the church as another club, an institution, and oftentimes an impersonal institution. Just another organization, rather than a place where needs are met, where the Lord is there, where there is a liberty and a freedom in the Lord. As we turn to Acts chapter 1, it's as if we get into a time machine and go back 2,000 years to our roots. The very first church, the church begins here. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, And upon this rock, the rock of the confession that Jesus Christ is the Lord, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus keeps his word in the book of Acts because we see the church emerging. A young, thriving group of people sold out for the Lord and doing great things in the name of the Lord. The book of Acts is like an explosion. The church doesn't come on with a lot of preparation beforehand. It just happens. It's an explosion. Very little organization in the early church. And if you read the book of Acts correctly, you see a group of people with very little organization, but an organism that is growing and multiplying, filled with vitality. There wasn't a boring moment during this time. It was an absolute explosion. And it is estimated that during the first several months that the church came on the scene in the book of Acts, it grew from 120 up to about 25,000 or 20,000 members. It is absolutely large. On one hand, you have an altar call where 5,000 men, as they were counting men without their wives or children, just the men, came to accept Jesus Christ. One altar call, 5,000. Besides their wives and their kids that came to know the Lord during that time. At another time, 3,000. And as it grew, there was about 20,000 people in the early church without pastors, really, without a set of bylaws, statements of faith, elders, deacons. It was the most disorganized thing on earth, and it was God's fault. He did it on purpose. Later on, the church does get organized. And you see the development of offices within the church, like deacons, like elders, bishops. The roles of a pastor are somewhat delineated, but not in detail. But at first, there really was an organization, and yet you see a fresh, thriving group of people who didn't try to take something and just categorize it and organize it and develop it and plan it. The Lord just took over and it blew the minds of the world. And so we come to the book of Acts to really see how this church was organized by the Lord and developed. During the uh, 1960s and 1970s, when something in this country called the Jesus Movement really started taking off, 
in Orange County, California, a newspaper came out during that time and all of these young people from 16 to about 25 in hordes were coming to know the Lord. And we're not talking your average, typical church person. We're talking barefooted, blue jeans, long hair, beards, slept out on the beach. They started coming to know Jesus Christ right and left. And that shook the institutionalized church. The organized, institutionalized church could not handle that. And so they did what we usually do in times of great revival. They criticized. They pointed the finger. And there was one newspaper article regarding this intense growth and movement of these young people who just loved Jesus Christ with all their hearts. And the newspaper article featured a local pastor from a very institutionalized church who was condemning what was happening. And in the course of the interview, in speaking of these young people in the Jesus movement, he said, well, all they have is Jesus. What else do you need? All they have is Jesus. All the people in the book of Acts had, especially in these early, very volatile chapters, was Jesus. That's all they knew. It was very fresh. It was like it just was hatched. It was just born. Jesus begins to build his church. When we first started um, this fellowship in Albuquerque, we were planning to start our first Sunday morning service. You know, I like to do this every now and then, but just for, um, uh, I don't know for what, but let's just do this anyway. How many people were attending this church when it really wasn't a church yet? It was just a Thursday night Bible study at the Lakes Apartments. Raise your hand. I see Phil and a few Jesse, a few of you guys. Yep. How many were here when we were in the theater picking up popcorn and gum? Okay. A little more. More of the same. When we started out, and we were planning to do a first Sunday morning service in February at the Far North Cinema Theater, um, there was a pastor in town. I didn't know him well, but he decided to give me some advice, and I appreciated his heart, but he just couldn't figure us out. And uh, we were at a radio station one day, and he said, Okay, I hear you're going to start Sunday. Boy, that's great. Now, um, what do you have going as far as pledge cards are concerned? You know, the first Sunday morning is a very crucial Sunday morning, and it's important that you not only get a list and the names and addresses and phone numbers, but that first day you speak about the vision, you pass out pledge cards, uh, financial pledge cards, get the ball rolling and so forth. I said, well, we don't, we don't really plan on doing pledge cards um, ever. puzzled look came over his face and he asked the next logical question of a well-meaning pastor. He said, um, well, how do you guys plan to um, um, take the offering at this place? Uh, you got all that taken care of. I said, you know, I've been thinking about it and praying about it. And, you know, everybody takes an offering, a formal offering. And I believe in tithing. I believe that the Bible teaches that every believer has a financial responsibility to his local church. But most Christians know that by now. Given all of the TV and the radio, they've been hyped so much with it. We're really not going to take an offering. We're putting a coffee can in the lobby of the theater and we'll just see whatever the Lord does. He said, it's never going to fly, man. It's never going to work. You've got to organize this thing. I said, well, all right, let us fail then. We'll just try it this way and see what the Lord does. Jesus said, I will build my church. And if we realize from the beginning, and that's why this book is so refreshing, that this is his place. It's his people. It's his church. Yes, there should be some amount of planning, some amount of organizing the organism, but not to the extent that that organism is stifled in growth. It can be structured, but to a point where the Lord can take over and do with what he wants. And so often, I personally believe the church has been guilty of sticking too much bureaucratic nonsense in a work that God wants to do. And they kill the thing. Have to have committees over every single thing in the church. And get everybody on a committee. And then you have to have a committee that governs the committees. And then a central committee to oversee the whole thing. You're just committed out. 
I don't see that in the book of Acts. I see committee in a sense where they got together and prayed and waited on the Lord. They made decisions and they lived with it. The first of anything is always important. Anytime you have a prototype, it's always important. The first car becomes a standard in a sense of automobiles. We always look back to the what? Model? Good. A few of you remembered the Model A. The first telephone becomes a standard in a sense. We always can maybe add a little bit, but the basic concept becomes the standard. This is the first church. And by the book of Acts, we always use this as a standard to measure any church against. Because Jesus said, I'll build my church. In the book of Acts, he keeps his promise. He's building it. It wasn't constant. It did change, as I say. More organization came to it. Roles differed. They became mission-minded in a way that was very different later on than in the early times. But nonetheless, this is the first and it becomes a prototype. And you will be happy to know that the early church was not as complicated as you think. The churches today have become very complicated. The early church was refreshingly uncomplicated. If any of you were to go up to the early people in Jerusalem and say, um, excuse me, I'm looking for a statement of faith here. Are you premillennial in your eschatology? Are you dispensationalist or would you say you're a charismatic? Are you Trinitarian in your ecclesiology? They go, huh? And most of us would say the same thing, huh? They'd say, well, about all I know is that there was this guy named Jesus and he's risen from the dead. and He's the Lord of all and I love him. And I'm following him and I'm doing what he wants me to do. And we get together... And you get a bunch of us together and Jesus said, that's the church. Well, where's your building? Oh, we just kind of meet in the temple. You know, the weather's nice down here in Jerusalem, Mediterranean weather. We can meet pretty much year round right there in the temple quarters. They let us do it as long as we're in the court of the Gentiles. And we meet from home to home. What about the pledge cards? What are those? What about offerings? Well, everybody has everything in common. And whatever somebody needs, we just take care of it. Well, it's not very organized. Ah, oh, but it's great. Beautiful. A warning right on the, the onset here. And that is, as we are looking through this book in the next um, several nights together, a warning, be careful not to imitate the incidentals, but to discover the essentials. You know, some people get so nitpicky on putting this little verse and you have to do it just this little way. There are some beautiful, basic, fundamental principles, but don't worry about the tiny little nitpicky details. I have often heard people talk about a New Testament church as some hollowed, perfect thing. You know, trying to duplicate the book of Acts, as if to say that the church in the book of Acts was flawless, perfect. If you've read the book of Acts, you know that's not true. They had power. They had miracles of healing, but they had carnality. Hey, listen, the Corinthians, they were a New Testament church too. And I'd never want to duplicate them ever. They had a few things going for them, but they had a lot of things lacking. And I think that most churches follow a New Testament pattern somehow, both in good and bad examples. And so let's be careful not to duplicate those tiny little incidentals. Now it says in verse 1, and we'll probably only cover three verses tonight, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during the 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, 
you've heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The book of Acts provides, as you can see just from the first few verses, a bridge. It bridges a gap. You have on one side of the gap the ministry of Jesus Christ, what he started to do, what he had begun to do through his teachings, through his workings, his miracles. On the other side, you have a church, church history, a church that has come into history and that is reaching the world with the gospel. The book of Acts shows the transition of how they got from a Messiah who died on the cross, rose again and ascended into heaven to an organism of growing, multiplying people, serving one another and getting the gospel out. There's a lot of questions that this book answers. Question number one, how did 12, well, 11, obscure, for the most part, Galilean fishermen with no background no education, certainly no theological seminary training, ever get to be prominent world leaders, number one, and church leaders, theological leaders. How did that happen? What happened in these guys' and gals' lives that changed them from timid, scared country bumpkins into bold apologists for the Christian faith? And how is it that a movement that began in Judaism, centered on a Jewish Messiah, based on Jewish scriptures, came to be espoused mostly by Gentiles and not Jews. How did that happen? The book of Acts answers all of those questions. By the way, most of the people that believe in the gospel today are Gentiles, non-Jews. The gospel was preached first to the Jew, you'll see that in the book of Acts, and then to the Gentiles. There comes a point in the book of Acts where Israel as a nation rejects Jesus Christ. Thus, the gospel goes to the Gentile world. However, that does not mean that God is through with the Jews. And some people teach that the church is spiritual Israel, that God is finished with the Jews. And all of the promises that went to the Jews are now to be applied only to the church. There will never be a literal regathering of the nation of Israel which is a bunch of bunk, by the way. Paul said that very clearly in the book of Romans, that God will not forsake Israel, even though Israel has forsaken the Lord, but that God would reach out and do the work called the church. And as he's working in the church through the Gentiles, that God in the last times will pour out his spirit again, once again on the nation of Israel. And we really see a great awakening just beginning to take place today in that land. The, for the most part, Israel has rejected Jesus Christ even to this day. But God has regathered Israel back into her land beginning on May 14, 1948. Against all odds, after 2,000 years of dispersion in countries all over the world, they're back in their land and there is a beautiful messianic movement where many Jewish people are coming to know the Lord. We have a girl from this church who is over in Israel now, a couple of them actually. And one of them is involved in some of the Jewish um, Christian movements going on. And it's an explosion over there right now. God is pouring out his spirit in a beautiful way. The book of Acts answers all those questions. It shows the transition from a Jewish, um, a Jewish kind of a movement into the Gentile movement. Look back at verse 8. This shows you the outline of the book of Acts. Jesus said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In one verse, you have the outline of the entire book of Acts. The writer of this book, Dr. Luke, a beloved physician who wrote the gospel of Luke, uses this as his outline. And so you find that the book of Acts follows this. The very beginning shows the gospel in Jerusalem. Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem. And then go out 
And so the first part of the book of Acts shows the gospel going throughout all of Jerusalem and many of the priests and Jewish leaders coming to know the Lord. 25,000 people, or 20,000 at least, become Christians in Jerusalem. Persecution arises, and that causes many of the Christians to leave the city. Where do they go? The villages of Judea. And as they're hanging around Judea, persecution breaks out in those villages. They have to go to Samaria, to that group of half-breeds known as Samaritans that nobody loved, and preach the gospel to the unlovely. Further persecution breaks out. They're scattered, and they go up into Antioch. After Antioch, they go into Asia Minor. Asia Minor over to Macedonia. Macedonia down into Achaia. From Achaia all the way up into Rome, the very center of the Roman Empire. And so there's this beautiful transition that follows this verse exactly. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even the uttermost parts of the earth. Let's briefly uh, take a look at the main actors of this book. Uh, First of all, the Holy Spirit. And Before we talk about Peter, Paul, Luke, and the rest, the main person in this book is the Holy Spirit Himself. We live in an age known as the Age of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit was promised to be poured out on all flesh. No longer is it like the Old Testament, where the Holy Spirit came upon only certain individuals, kings, prophets, and the like. But the Holy Spirit comes into every believer's life, upon the believer's life, and empowers him for service to go out. You know, the title of this book says, The Acts, at least in my Bible, The Acts of the Apostles. The original autograph simply say The Acts, not The Acts of the Apostles. And um, since Of the Apostles is not in the original, I prefer to cross it out and retitle it, The Acts of the Holy Spirit Through the Apostles. Or The Acts of Jesus Christ through the agency of the Holy Spirit, using average people like you and me. And you see that the Holy Spirit's name is mentioned 70 times in this book, showing that the early church did not depend on their organizations, did not depend on their building committees, did not depend on their pulpit committees, depended on the Holy Spirit. He was moving through every vein, every aspect of the early church in such a beautiful way. And so the Holy Spirit is number one. Secondly, there's Peter. Good old foot-in-the-mouth Peter. The guy who said so many stupid things so many times. In the book of Acts, he's a changed man. We leave off in the Gospels where we see Peter, timid, so scared to present a Gospel witness, even when a young servant girl asks him a few questions. I mean, he doesn't even have to go door-to-door witnessing. Somebody asks him to witness. Weren't you with Jesus? Now he could have said, actually, as a matter of fact, I was, and let me tell you about it. He was given an opportunity to witness. He turned it down. He denied the Lord, and he wept bitterly. Turn to the book of Acts. It seems like an entirely different person. He's proclaiming the gospel to thousands of people on Solomon's porch, overlooking the entire temple compound. He tells them to repent and believe the gospel. Thousands of people get saved. And you scratch your head and you say, is this the same Peter? Answer is, no. This is Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. This is Peter after the resurrection. This is Peter who's tapped into the power of God, who's seen the risen Lord and he's been recommissioned. An entirely different person. Still uneducated, still unlearned, but powerful and mighty. There's a beautiful phrase, I think it's the fourth chapter, fifth chapter. They were brought before the Sanhedrin. And these educated, proper Leaders of the Jewish people look at Peter and John and they recognize that they were unlearned and ignorant men, but that they had been with Jesus. And you know, I love that testimony. When people can look at our lives and they can say, well, you know, I don't know what you have or you don't have as far as your education, your background, your qualifications, but you've been hanging around Jesus. I can tell that by your life. And God forbid that we are known for our fleshly accomplishments. God help us to be known for the fact that we had been with Jesus. Because all of the background in the world, apart from being with Jesus, really won't do you any good as far as lasting results. 
On the other hand, I think it was Dwight L. Moody said, a plowboy with a Bible is more equipped to give out spiritual truth than the most educated pagan who does things in the name of Christ. Unlearned and ignorant men. That's Peter. But he has been with Jesus. Peter is the main focus of attention in the first part of the book of Acts. He becomes the apostle to the Jewish nation. Remember that phrase, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile? The gospel first is going to the Jews, not the Gentiles, okay? At first, God's giving them that hand. Even Jesus first went to the Jews. When he commissioned the disciples, he said, only go to the children of Israel. Don't go to the Samaritans or the way of the Gentiles. Just reach the children of Israel. To the woman at the well, he said, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. And so the hand first goes out to the Jewish nation and then to the Gentiles. Um, look at the question in verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, they're very Jewish-oriented right now. This group of disciples has no idea what's going to happen in the next 10, 12, 16 weeks. They have no idea. They expect that at this time, all of the Old Testament promises are going to be fulfilled now. And you can't blame them. The Old Testament says that the Jewish nation would be regathered, restored. All of the nations will flow together to Mount Zion and worship the Messiah. And so Jesus died, rose from the dead, is in Jerusalem. And the disciples think, hot diggity dog, this is the time. He's going to restore now the kingdom to Israel. We've been under Roman oppression for a long time. And this is the time we've all been waiting for. And so they go, hey, Jesus, is now the time? Jesus simply says, basically, um, you interrupted me. I was talking about the Holy Spirit who was going to come upon you. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father put in his own hand or authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And I've got a job for you to do, to be my witness in all the world. But they're very conscious about the Jews. Then, around Acts chapter 8 and 9, we get to a guy by the name of Paul formerly Saul of Tarsus. And since Acts is a transition book from Jewish to Gentile, from law to grace, Paul then takes center stage, really the rest of the book. And uh, before we go on, just as a matter of um, background for those of you who aren't familiar with these groups very much, there are two prominent Jewish groups in the book of Acts. Most of you know their names, the old Pharisees and the Sadducees. A lot of people don't know about them, where they came from and what they believed in. Let me give you a very brief background. There was a time between the Old Testament and the New Testament called the silent years. It was 400 years where God did not speak his word prophetically. There was no revelation given. It ended with Malachi. The Jews were taken into captivity for 70 years. They came back, and as they came back, two groups emerged out of those 400 silent years and partially from the captivity. First group was by the name of Pharisees. They decided that the captivity was so harsh that they would be good boys and girls from now on and really obey God. They started out right. Their Hebrew name is Parashim. It means the separated ones. They said, hey... You know, we got into trouble for not keeping the commandments of God. So, we're going to do our best to keep every jot and tittle of the law. And they kind of went overboard. Not kind of, they definitely went overboard. They became so concerned with not only the Old Testament, but rabbinical tradition, that they had rules and regulations like you wouldn't believe. They would attach hundreds of stipulations to every Old Testament commandment. And so they labored over things like, thou shalt do no labor on the Sabbath day. That wasn't good enough for the Pharisees. They had to sit down and say, now, what is meant by labor? We have to define this, Voik. 
And so they came up with 365 negative commandments and about 200 and some odd positive commandments. They said that um, you could not carry a load on the Sabbath day because that's work. But you had to define a load. And so they got so nitpicky, if you carry so many nails or the weight of so many nails in a sandal, that is a load. The weight of two dried figs, beyond that is a load. They even got so far to say that if you spit on the Sabbath day and the spittle rolled in the dirt and created a tiny little furrow in the sand, that that was against the work regulation because you're plowing on the Sabbath day. I'm not joking you. I mean, it was ridiculous. You can see why Jesus clashed head-on with these religious leaders. They're in the book of Acts. A lot of them come to know the Lord. Paul the Apostle was a Pharisee. He was one of them. and became one of the greatest defenders of the faith. Then you have the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in immortality. And hence that joke you always hear, they're sad, you see. Okay, um, <laughs> verse 1. The former account that I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began, both to do and to teach. Now, automatically, you ask yourself, what account is he talking about? And there's a name here, Theophilus, gives us a clue. Keep your finger here, turn back to Luke chapter 1. And we get a little bit of insight into who this guy was. Luke chapter 1. Let's just read the first couple verses. Listen to how he words it. Uh, in following weeks, we'll go faster, but this is the introduction. It's fun to get background. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which are most surely believed among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Theophilus is thought to be the owner and the master of Luke. Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. And he was a slave, no doubt. History tells us that Theophilus was a notable senator, some government official, because the Roman Empire classified groups of people. First class was the common people. That would be like you and I. Secondly, there would be the knights. They were the aristocrats, and they had some real social standing. And Third, there were the government officials, the nobles, and Theophilus was one of those. The very rich people in that third upper class in the old days owned slaves, and doctors were among some of those slaves. It's a real twist from the way things are today. It's the other way around so many times. You're a slave to the medical bills. Luke, no doubt, was owned and the private physician of Theophilus, who was a noble. And secular history tells us that Luke led Theophilus to Jesus Christ. Theophilus was so excited that he gave Luke his freedom to accompany Paul on a journey. And we see him appearing in the book of Acts, becoming one of the companions of Paul. In fact, he was one of Paul's best friends. During his last imprisonment in Rome, Luke stays in prison with him to minister to him taking care of him as a private doctor. Probably an agreement was struck up that Luke would write an account, a gospel account, a detailed account for Theophilus, the master. And so he wrote the Gospel of Luke. Having researched things beautifully in a detailed fashion, he wrote the Gospel of Luke. Then he wrote a sequel to Luke, the book of Acts. And so you understand now the first verse when it says, the former account that I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Um, we'll draw attention to this later on, but Luke, like no one else, uses his professional background when he writes. 
And it's kind of neat to see this in the book of Acts as well as the gospel of Luke. Obviously, a doctor writes these two books because he uses medical terms all over the place. In the gospel of Luke, when it spoke, it speaks about the uh, person who convulsed because of the demons, it's a medical term for like epileptic convulsions. When the person came to Jesus and said, come and see my son or look at my son, the term that Luke uses is the medical term for a doctor making a house call. A doctor, Jesus, come over and make a house call. That's how Luke phrases it. And so you see a lot of these medical terms all the way through. Uh, By the way, when Luke speaks of the eye of the needle, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. He uses a word that no one else uses. Um, The other gospel writers use... That word for a regular household needle, Luke uses the term for a surgical needle. That's his background. Okay, notice this hinging word in verse 1 and 2. Of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. You know why that is important? Because the gospel accounts of Jesus, all that he did in his ministry, healing, teaching, We're just the beginning of his ministry. It is wrong for us to think that the ministry of Jesus ended at the cross and then the resurrection and ascension into heaven. It was not over. That's just what Jesus began to do and to teach. The book of Acts is what Jesus continues to do and to teach through his church by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And that little phrase right at the beginning shows you where the book of Acts is going. That Jesus is not finished yet. He's still doing a work on the earth through us. There is a phrase that Paul used frequently, especially in Corinthians. It's the phrase body of Christ. And you get the concept when he speaks of the church as a physical body connected to a head. And who's the head? Jesus. And we're members of his body. So when Jesus now wants to get stuff done, he doesn't appear and do it himself. He doesn't send angels to get the job done. He uses his fingers, his arms, his own body, which is the church. And so the church must stay connected to the head or the body is dead, right? You take the head off of a person, the body will no longer cease to operate. Because the head is grand central station. The body needs the impulses and the directions from the brain to tell it what to do. Same with the church. Jesus is the head. The Holy Spirit is the nervous system. Going to every member of the body saying, get busy. Get involved. Here's your gift. Go do that. So that the Lord can get his work done on the earth from the right hand of the Father in heaven. Jesus began to do something and to teach something when he was here in the flesh. But from the right hand of the throne of the Father, Jesus is still doing it through the Holy Spirit, through the church, the apostles. So it's just the beginning. You look at Acts chapter 2 and we see right in the beginning that the Holy Spirit is poured out. And then it says at the end of chapter 2, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So the Lord's doing the work right there in the book of Acts. They're not adding to the church. They're not sending out membership drives and so forth. The Lord's adding to the church. You look at Acts chapter 3, there's a healing that takes place. In whose name? In Jesus' name. You get to Acts chapter 7, you read of a guy named Stephen. As he's being stoned and beaten to death, He looks up into the sky and he sees a vision of who? Jesus. And he says, look, I see Jesus at the hand of the Father. And he says, receive my spirit, Lord Jesus. And he fell asleep or he died. Jesus is all through the book of Acts continuing to do, continuing to teach. As you look at the very end of the book of Acts, it really has a poor ending if it were a completed book. It really has no good ending. There's no culmination. There's no uh, narrative climax. It just ends with Paul's in prison. That's it. 
It's sort of like a movie. Ever seen the movie where just right when you think something's going to happen and the heroes, they're in prison or the heroes hanging over a cliff dangling on the screen, those horrible words flash that say, to be continued next week. And you go, oh, I want to see the end of that. I have to wait next week to see it. Drives you crazy. That's the way the Holy Spirit wrote the book of Acts. It has no adequate ending because there is no ending. It's as if Luke is sitting up there writing more chapters to it. Because the Acts continues. The Holy Spirit didn't leave when Paul died. He's still working. And he worked through the early church. He worked through the post-apostolic era. He worked through the time of the Reformation. He works through the centuries of higher criticism. He's worked in the revivals and in this country, and he's working tonight all over the world. The acts continue. Jesus Christ is not finished yet. The point of that all is that you and I have a purpose. God has a purpose. And you could put yourself right into Acts chapter 1, verse 1, 2, and 3, that what Jesus began to do while he was on earth, he still wants to do through you. You're a part of his plan. That's why you are alive now. Brother shared that beautiful testimony of driving a truck. It should have flipped. By all rights, he should have been dead and in heaven. But God said, you're not ready for heaven. I mean, you're ready to go to heaven, excuse me. (laughs) But I've got a job for you to do. The fact that you and I are alive shows that heaven is not the only purpose for which we were created. We are here to be a light so that Jesus Christ from the throne of heaven can continue to do and to teach through you and I. He's got a purpose, a job for us to do. Um, turn with me, since we have uh, four minutes left, we can, we can cut it. Uh, John chapter 14. Show you a couple verses. John chapter 14. These are the last moments of Jesus being with his disciples. He's kind of like a coach with his team before the game, filling them in on a few essentials. Look down at verse 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. That's puzzled a lot of people. What do you mean, greater works? I mean, it's tough to beat walking on water. It's tough to beat raising people from graveyards. That's a tough act to follow. I don't quite get it. Greater works than these shall he do. Okay, let's turn over to Acts chapter 16 then. We kind of get it in its context. It's one long narrative. I'm just skipping ahead. Verse 5. But now I go away to him who sent me. In other words, soon I'm going to die, rise, and ascend to the Father. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. You can understand why. Jesus said, I'm leaving. And in John chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment of sin because they believe not on me. Look at verse 13. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. Jesus Christ thought it was much more important for the disciples to have the Holy Spirit come, then for he himself to personally be with them. That's an amazing statement. It is to your advantage that I leave you. I'm sure that puzzled the disciples. 
I mean, what could be better than being physically with Jesus Christ? This has been great. They had learned to trust and turn to Jesus in every situation. And he was the master of every circumstance. He had it all under control. He was wonderful to be around. Every situation that came up, they turned to Jesus. He had an answer for it. The boat's about to sink because of the storm. Hey, wake Jesus up. He'll know what to do. 5,000 people without food. Uh, Jesus, you got a plan for this? The uh, Roman um, IRS came to collect taxes from the disciples. And Jesus said, well, yeah, we owe tax and we should pay them. So go down to the Sea of Galilee right there in Capernaum. Uh, first fish you get out, open his mouth. There'll be enough money to pay your taxes. Handy guy to have around. <laughs> Master of every situation. The disciples learned to turn to Jesus and everything. And now Jesus says, you know what? It's to your advantage that I go away. What? Yeah, because if I don't go, the Holy Spirit can't come. But if I leave, I will send him to you. Now, here's the scope, folks. Jesus Christ, in a very real sense, was limited by his incarnation geographically. Jesus has had and still has the answer for the world. But he traveled mostly through Judea and Galilee very tiny portion of geography. He was limited by that geographical location. By leaving, Jesus said the Holy Spirit is going to come into every believer. He'll come into the world to convict the sin of the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He'll fill you, he'll empower you, and you'll go out, and wherever you go, I and the Holy Spirit will be with you, and we'll duplicate these works. So that no longer am I limited by geography, but it'll go through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And look at the book of Acts. The works of Jesus were duplicated in the apostles. Wherever they went, things happened. And tonight, we have a church all over the world. People are praying over in China, and God answers their prayers. People pray for healing in India. It works. The Holy Spirit, Jesus, are present in His church here. No longer limited by geography, greater works are being done. And it is to our advantage that Jesus had left and given us his Holy Spirit. There was a time, in fact, every now and then that time uh, uh, crops up, where I believe perhaps the Lord would just move me on and call me to uh, pioneer another work, uh, start another church, or move to Asia. I go over to India and I see the needs and I think, maybe we should just move here, honey. It's just a right field. And yet, the Lord hasn't allowed me to do that. Instead, He's allowed me to train up other people to go out and start other churches or to challenge other people to go out and be involved in a mission work. And the work gets duplicated in that fashion. That's what the Holy Spirit has done. He invades the lives of people, sends them out, and the work of Jesus Christ that he began in the Gospels, he continues all the way through the present. Until the day which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them 40 days and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And we'll close there tonight. The kingdom of God. Jesus spoke. One of his favorite topics was the kingdom of God. And I want to close with that thought tonight. Just let that rest upon our hearts. Jesus said that our number one priority was to be what? What were we to seek first? The kingdom of God. Above our own agenda, above our own plans and pleasures in life, the kingdom of God. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Part of our thinking should have a priority, and that is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. How will this help the kingdom of God? What will this choice in my life have to do possibly with the extension of the kingdom of God since I'm to seek that first and have all these things added unto me? Kingdom thinking is to be paramount.
You know, I believe that the Lord will allow our lives or even make our lives a bit uncomfortable sometimes just for that reason. Because when the earth starts shaking, either in reality or figuratively in our lives, we start remembering, oh yeah, I'm just passing through this joint. There's a whole nother kingdom. God help us not to get our roots too deeply embedded in such a transitory lifestyle. We're just, it's so brief. It's but a moment. It's but a breath. God help us to focus and get homesick for the kingdom. And every time our life gets a little bit unsettled and things don't work our way, more than ever we pray, Thy kingdom come. Or as John prayed, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. For Paul the Apostle said, our citizenship is in heaven. From whence we look for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The greatest thrill on this earth can't compare to what it's going to be like in heaven. It's the greatest thing. So kingdom awareness. Jesus came. He started a work. And he's continuing his work through his church. His church is given a commission, marching orders, to build the kingdom of heaven. Not on their own, not with their committees, not in the flesh, in the power of the Spirit of God. Have you received marching orders from the Lord? If you haven't, if you haven't received some kind of direction of what God wants you to do, make it a priority. And wait on the Lord until He commissions you with marching orders a place to get involved in the church and outside the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that we are not left as orphans, as Jesus said. You said you would not leave us as orphans or comforters, that you would come to us. Lord, we thank you that Jesus came. We thank you that Jesus died. We thank you that Jesus rose from the dead and we are thankful that Jesus ascended into heaven and left this earth because in doing so, he could send the Holy Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the church is made strong, given a commission, sent out to do battle valiantly. I pray, Lord, that each one of us would wait upon you for marching orders, getting involved, seeing our life in terms of the kingdom and being content with nothing less than marching out in the name of Jesus as you continue to do things and to teach things through us. We ask that in the name of Jesus, for his sake and for his glory. Amen.